I think that'll be an annual song you'll sing, Pastor Mike, uh, this time of year. So you make up the special music calendar. So thank you, Pastor, for that. Tremendous reminder of the conversion, humility, and the obedience of a godly man. Prepares our heart, actually, quite frankly, the last phrase that he sung, to honor and what? Obey. You caught that. That's wonderful. It's wonderful. Uh, we, we, right, sing uh, to teach and admonish one another. And uh, we can't be taught unless we hear. And uh, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So let's talk about that today. How does God's grace compel us to obey? How does the grace of God compel us to obey? Our Christmas text this morning is found in Titus chapter 2. Let's go to Titus chapter 2 this morning together. Uh, you may have recognized inside your folder an invitation for you to invite someone to next Sunday morning's Christmas Eve service at 1015. Um, so please utilize that as a, as a token to uh, influence your memory, but also your heart to invite someone for next Sunday morning. What is the context of Titus? Boy, I'll tell you, it seems like um, our hearts have just, if you stay connected with our outside world, our, our hearts uh, are almost forced to endure the, the news of a culture that seeks to ruin itself, right? A culture that seeks to ruin itself. Have you ever noticed that fallen man, even uh, when they seek to try to do good things, can't help themselves but pepper that good intention with sinful motivation and therefore ruin themselves. Um, our political leaders um, are um, entertaining leaders, if that's an oxymoron, probably. Uh, the folks who lead entertainment in our country, boy, they're, uh, it seems like people are falling like flies, isn't it? You know, I don't know that we've ever, ever going to hear the end of the refrain, I was harassed at work, and someone else loses their job. I know that there's a lot of opinions about all that that's going on right now, uh, but we live in a culture of self-indulgence, don't we? Um, you say, Pastor Tim, that's a, a Debbie Downer way to, to start a Christmas message. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ as the grace of God, uh, this first advent pierced a dark culture. Right? He, he came to give life to the living dead. Right? Um, ever since sin entered the world, man can't help themselves but continue to ruin themselves. And every time they try to find a way to write... They end up in the wrong because they will not look to him who is the right, the right of God, Jesus Christ himself. When Paul 
sends Titus to Crete. He sends this young pastor to a very dark culture. As a matter of fact, what we find interesting about the Cretan culture was its darkness was found in the context of religious people. Religious people who knew much of God from the ears up, but knew nothing of God from the neck down. It was all head knowledge, but no heart knowledge. Where there's head knowledge, but no heart knowledge, man cannot help themselves but try to do right of their own, always ending up in more ruin. Look at chapter 1 and verse 10 of Titus. We get a little context of the kind of people that Titus will now be asked to reach out to and to shepherd. It says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those who are religious, those of the circumcision. For those who are newer to Christianity, those would be speaking directly of religious Jews in that culture. Who must be silenced because they're upsetting who? They're upsetting the home. You would say religious people upsetting the home? There's a lot of people in our culture that claim to believe that there's a God and they'll even celebrate Christmas and they'll believe that Jesus is the son of God who have never been born again. A lot of head knowledge, not a lot of heart knowledge at all until they've experienced a second birth. Teaching things, they have an agenda. They, have, they live with great intention. Teaching things they should not teach for the sake of getting rich. In other words, these are religious people that are ruining homes and they're actually doing religious, they're religious jobs to, for a paycheck. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then he says, Paul says to Titus that one of these religious pagans, how he describes the irreligious pagans of Crete is actually correct. And this testimony is true, so there's a real interesting dynamic going on here. A religious pagan who's ruining families, doing his job for a paycheck, has a lot of head knowledge and no heart knowledge, stands up in his pulpit, and he preaches, boy, aren't these irreligious pagans of Crete, you know, aren't they liars? They're just horrible people. They're lazy beasts, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And boy, aren't we good, you know? Aren't we safe in church? But Paul indicts both the religious and the irreligious. The religious leader and the irreligious commoner. They both seek to do their own thing their own way and it leads to even more ruin. Personal ruin and cultural ruin. Okay. The text goes on to say, this testimony is true for this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in what? Sound in the faith. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God by their deeds. They deny him. And now he's combining both the religious and the irreligious. They may profess to know God, but by their deeds, by the way they live day to day, they've never been transformed, never had a second birth. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So really, 10 to 16 is really nothing new under the sun. This is every culture who maybe knows about Jesus Christ but refuses to be transformed by him who is the grace of God. Man left to themselves always brings ruin to themselves, personally and culturally. Let's never forget that. Man left to themselves always brings ruin to themselves both personally and culturally. Paul says the remedy is for that. The remnant of genuine belief in Crete's got to have a proper shepherd who's got to preach sound doctrine. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. Paul says, But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation which I entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. If, if, if transformation is going to change and church people who are truly converted are going to maintain a godly culture, Inside the church, so they can be light outside the church, it's got to come from the top down. It's got to come from the pastor of the church down. And then the next, the, 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 the next group of people, that's an individual, the first group of people outside the individual, the pastor who sets the pace, is found in chapter 2 that we're very familiar with here. The Apostle Paul gave the teachings to Titus. Titus is to carry out at Crete to address this religious and irreligious culture. But in order to address that irreligious and irreligious culture, it's got to be healthy within from the pastor to who? The older people in the church who are true saints. Older men and older women need to own the truth so that sound doctrine, verse 1, can be perpetuated through the flock. So their mature older examples can become not just the the, the example to be heard, but the example to be seen in the way they live. And it gets intensely personal here with how men are supposed to teach, older men are supposed to teach younger men, and older women are supposed to teach younger women in the local church. And, 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 and not just what they know, but again, how they speak and then how they live so that the word of God be not blasphemed. God's word is blasphemed if we say we know a lot about Christ, but by the way we speak and the way we, the decisions we make and the way we leave, live can deny him. So the church has to be healthy within before it can be light without. The darkness of the culture cannot be part of the church if the church is going to be light to the culture. So in kind of a summation of these opening verses of chapter 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul tells Titus uh, some very encouraging words. All right, Titus, I've given you a really tough job. Uh, you're going to go to a place that's a really tough culture to minister. You're going to have some work to do. You're going to have to lead by example. The elders, chapter 1, all right, 
are going to have to assist you. You're going to be the first among equals. The older people are going to have to buy in to sound doctrine, not just knowing it, but living it. And they're going to have to be that living example to all the younger people. And even though it might be an arduous task and seemingly impossible attack, a task, Titus, it's not ideological. It's not mystical. It can happen. It will happen. Trust me. And just for further encouragement, let's look at our Christmas text beginning in verse 11. Why, Titus? Why can all of this happen? Why should all of this happen in verse 11? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. I want to take this brief context and divide it up into an outline that you can certainly develop on your own later. We're going to emphasize certain aspects of this outline uh, this morning, but I'll give it to you here, and it's, it's quite simple. What do we find out here about this grace that's mentioned in verse 11? For the grace of God. Well, a number of different things here. First of all, let's learn about in verse 11 the manifestation of this grace. The manifestation of this grace. Secondly, in verse 12, we're going to consider the way this grace educates us, the education, the manifestation, the education of this grace. And verse 13 is going to tell us the expectation that this grace brings. Manifestation, education, expectation, and finally, verse 14, the culmination. The culmination. What's the final goal for each one of us? Your bulletin uh, discusses a simple title uh, for this morning, and I've adapted it to the holiday for sure, uh, but I just called it the Christmas Classroom. The Christmas Classroom. Christmas is all about grace. It's all about grace. It's all about the grace of God. It says here in verse 11, let's consider the manifestation of this grace. The grace of God has appeared has appeared. You have to understand the way the Cretan believers would have understood this word appeared. And the Paul writes Titus, this word would have been understood in a very particular way. It really is the sudden appearance of a hero to subdue a villain right? for your personal protection. So this is the idea. You're walking along a city street and someone runs by you as a lady and they grab your pocketbook, rip it off your arm, and they run. Right? Or they may grab your pocketbook and seek to beat you. Someone arrives on the scene, right? A good Samaritan subdues the criminal, 
gives you your bag back and sets you free. That's the idea of this word appeared. And the Cretan believers would have heard this in a very personal way. So it says here, the grace of God has appeared as your spiritual hero for you. So draw the circle around yourself. The Cretan believers would not have heard this as the hero arriving for the whole flock. They would have heard it as their hero arriving to set them free from certain death. The grace of God is the hero of God for you personally. Well, the hero in our context is not a concept. The hero in our context is not an object, but the hero in our context is a person. It's a person. The Cretan believer would have immediately understood the analogy that Paul was giving here that that the, the person of God's grace has rescued me from certain death. The person of God's grace has rescued me from certain death. Well, the person's not mentioned here in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God is used some 15 times, this phrase in Pauline writings. But Paul doesn't leave this, this grace, this person, unidentified, does he? While grace is mentioned first in verse 11, we see how this grace operates in verse 12. We'll see that in a little bit. And then we see this grace identified in verses 13 and 14. We're looking for this grace, and this grace is our blessed hope. It is God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself, a people for his own possession, zealous unto good works. Jesus, my friends, is the personal hero who rescued us from certain death. He is the grace of God that has appeared. One author said, grace is some not abstract doctrine or theological construct. Grace comes as Christ does. Grace is as personal as he is. In fact, Christ is grace. Think about that when we use the term grace from now on. The grace of God will protect you. The grace of God sustains you. We often think as grace is merely unmerited favor, and that's okay, and that's exactly what it is. But the unmerited favor of God is Jesus. And since he is forever in us and with us and will never leave us nor forsake us, grace will always cause us to persevere. Amen. That's why we say here grace saves us and grace sustains us. Grace is a person. It's an omnipotent, personal savior. He goes on to say we, we should thus see grace as a personal action by a personal God who saved us from our helpless condition out of pure love and it brings salvation to who? All men. All men. This offer has been personally made to every person ever born. That's what the text says, doesn't it? So everyone 
is compelled to consider this grace and to analyze this person as to who he is and why he came. This grace came as an educator. Jesus came as an educator, verse 12, as we continue on. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and lend to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. This is where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning as we conclude. What is the education of the person of grace, Jesus Christ? We all learn simple foundations of letters, words, vocabulary, simple numbers, clear back to kindergarten and every year a different class, a different teacher, a different grade builds upon another to the point where we can function in the culture and that's really the idea behind the grammar here of just the word instructing. It's, it's a continual process and it's done in layers. This is the intention of our Savior. Grace is always teaching. It started teaching us the moment we were born again, and it will never stop teaching. So that's why at Grace we always talk about we want to be a community of learners, lovers, and worshipers. Always learning as we seek to train others who are always learning. But I find it interesting here, the root word of the verbal instructing is where we get our English word child training. Child training. Um, The believer is instructed by the person of Jesus Christ to always receive instruction as a little one, as an infant. Um, We may have a tendency to stray, but the Lord Jesus Christ has a strong desire. The grace of God has a strong desire to bring us back from straying, to keep us focused on some fundamental things here that are necessary, and we always need to be childlike in our desire to learn and anticipate learning. There was a time when I was in, in, in elementary school where I really couldn't wait to get up and go to school. Somehow, and for some reason, that waned in junior high and high school. But kindergarten and first and second and third grade and fourth grade and fifth grade, not so much sixth grade, I was really excited to go. There got to be a time where I had to be told to go. And then somewhere along the line when I got to college, I actually liked it again. But nonetheless, this is the idea. Little ones love to be led. They love to be nurtured. They love to be cared for. They love to be protected. And the protection is in the training. That's the idea here. And this instruction is twofold. It's negative first and positive second. In other words, there are, there are things our hero, our grace, Jesus Christ himself, helps us to stop. There are things the grace of God helps us to say no to. And there are some things he helps us to say yes to. Pretty simple, right? What do we say no to? He says here, you know what? It teaches us constantly to deny ungodliness. And what is ungodliness here? 
It really is, for those of you that are saved later in life, you might get this better than those of us who are saved very early in life. By its most elementary definition, ungodliness is just simply the irreverence and the impiety that characterized our lives before we were saved. In other words, there was a, pretty much a disrespect for God, a disrespect for Jesus. It doesn't mean that we weren't willing to acknowledge their existence and maybe even consider their influence. But for me, for myself, and for I, I really didn't need them. And quite frankly, I really didn't want them because I didn't want this child training. I didn't want to be, untold, I didn't want to be told what not to do, and what I should do. And in our fallen natures, none of us like that, right? None of us like authority stepping into our lives of any kind saying, don't do this and you better do that, right? But as little ones in Christ, we are told here to deny this ungodliness and the next few phrases here are really explicating, in particular, what irreverence and impiety is. So we go from general to particular. Deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And the word here, desires, is the word lusts. And yes, it is a broad term, but in particular here, grace is telling us, no, you should not, you should not want what the world wants and enjoys that causes their own downfall. You're a new little one in Jesus Christ. These dark desires that the world craves and the world has to have. And by these desires and the living out of these desires, they ruin themselves. These are the things you know. No, God's grace. Jesus is constantly instructing you as a little one. No, 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 no. And again, none of us like to be told no. But Jesus says no. I, I, I just had to chuckle. I was reading an article last, last week, and you know everything that's happened since Harvey Weinstein was dethroned from all that is the darkness of Hollywood, right? And you know the litany of other people that have fallen from their prestigious positions as a result. And again, like I said earlier, none, that's not going to stop. I found it really interesting. What does the world do to save itself? So, so now, because the sexual harassment has gone down into the workplace, and guys in the workplace are losing their jobs because of stupid things that they said or did with the opposite sex, uh, they're, they're identifying one of the things that they always allowed and they always embraced that actually is causing, causing some of this dark behavior between people of the opposite sex. And it's drinking at holiday parties. So this particular article was about corporate business Christmas parties. And they're curtailing alcohol completely and or they're limiting everyone to just two glasses of booze. Praise God for their nobility. <laughs> this is the silver bullet. This is going to fix the, the debauchery that is sexual harassment in the workplace, right? Everything man does that's good only leads to their further ruin. Booze or the lack thereof is not going to fix the condition of a wicked man's heart. But Paul is saying is here, you know what? 
Booze for a believer? Yeah, I don't want that. Why should you want that, little one? Why should you want anything that's going to alter your behavior, even to the slightest, and compel you to think darkly and act darkly, you fools? What does the world crave? Why would you want what the world craves that compels it to live more darkly? The grace of God, Jesus has come, and he's instructing you. No to ungodliness. No to everything the world craves that's dark and leads to more darkness. No, 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 no. Remember the culture of Crete, not much different than ours. College campuses are replete with kids taking drugs so they don't get permanent disease. And the way to protect kids is to give them a drug so that they continue to do dark things. For us, it's insanity, isn't it? It's utter insanity. The world is constantly trying to be permissive by protecting itself against the terminal problem of their sinful activity. It's insanity. Parents are going out providing drugs to protect their kids from the results or the consequences of their promiscuity. Parents are buying their kids to have the booze and the party in their own home so a kid can drive home drunk and kill themselves. The insanity is insanity. And even what we do to try to protect ourselves, we ruin ourselves. This is the culture. But to the saint, to the baby little one in Jesus Christ, no. right? No, you say, well, Pastor Tim, I don't do that stuff. I don't do booze. I don't, I don't live to protect myself from the consequences of, of, of promiscuity. But what do you allow in your ear gate and your eye gate that is the promotion of that which you won't do? Paul's very clear in Ephesians. Don't let these dark things even come in your ear. Don't let them in your eye gate. Young people, what's on your playlist? Who's on your playlist? What do they sing about? What does their life promote? And the grace of God is instructing you, no, no, no. Don't even let it be entertained among you as little ones. Don't start the slippery slope because the grace of God compels us to personal holiness, not worldliness. Deny. It teaches us to deny, to say, I don't know you. I don't want to know you. I used to know you, but I don't know you anymore. Talk to the hand. Nope, that's what what Jesus is teaching me. Sorry, Justin Timberlake. Sorry, Justin Timberlake, don't know you, don't want to know you, sad I ever did. Why would you ever want to know anything as a little child of God about bringing sexy back? Nope. 
Don't have to go to that concert. Wouldn't want to. Why would I? Because the grace of God's compelling me. That's a polar idea. Justin Timberlake and Jesus. I pray the guy gets saved someday. You name the artist. We could go down through hundreds and thousands. But look at your playlists. I don't drink. I'm not involved in... But you're allowing yourself to hear about it. You'll buy their tunes. You'll allow your life to be invaded by the content of the way they live. And the grace of Jesus Christ is saying what? No. 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 You say, Pastor Tim, now you're sounding old-fashioned. You're really meddling now. Well, it's just what the text says. <laughs> okay. So I'll be as old-fashioned as Jesus. How's that? Okay. What does he say here? What do we think so much about the no's? What about the yeses? This is what the grace of God teaches us to do. Are you ready? It gets really wonderful here. We get to live sensibly, we get to live righteously, and we get to live godly in this present age. There's a dichotomy here. These are polar ideas here, negative and now positive. Can I just tell you three words to identify with each one of these phrases? The grace of God compels us to inward change. The grace of God, that's, that's the idea here of sensibly. The grace of God compels us to outward change, that's righteously. And the grace of God compels us to upward change, godly in this present age. Inward, outward, and upward. It's a wonderful thing here. The word sensibly has everything to do with you protecting and nurturing your own heart spiritually. Just write that down. That's exactly what it means. That's how the Cretan believers would have had it. This is your time with God, your time with the word, your time with him in prayer. It's you protecting your heart. It's you protecting your heart, right? Proverbs 4.24, guard your heart for out of it are all the issues of life. Inward care. You know what the word righteously means? You would think it has to do with the righteousness of Christ and positional truth and so forth, but it doesn't here, not in this context. This has everything to do with you living correctly towards those with whom you have obligations. I have obligations maritally to my wife. I have obligations to my children. I have obligations to my home. I have obligations to my church. I have obligations to my job and my boss. I have obligations to pay my bills so the heat stays on. I have obligations to follow through with my word or the word that my, my, my hand wrote with my own signature. This is living righteously with the culture having a good testimony with those to whom you are obligated within God's creative construct of things. And then it's right days as well. Can I tell you something as we close here? All right. Do you know that in this century, Christians were considered atheists? 
If you were, if you were a monotheist, you were considered an atheist. Because in Crete, these people would have had a patron god for the refrigerator if they would have had one. So if their refrigerator broke, then they must have done something to displease the patron god of refrigerators. Seriously. They would have had a patron god for their garden. So if a deer came along and snipped off and ate off all the leaves of their green bean plants, I must have displeased the gods somewhere. They had a patron god for work. So if a job contract went bad, they must have done something to displease the patron god of work. They had a patron god for sport. Everything that you can think about practically in their lives, they had a personal patron god for that thing or activity. So if it went bad, something was wrong where they displeased the gods, and it went with good, they were pleasing the gods. It was a very polytheistic, a, hypo, a hyper polytheistic culture. So if you didn't have all these gods and you were a monotheist, well, you're, you're godless. But Paul's saying here, counterculturally, these are the things you deny. These are the things you say yes to. Take care of your heart. That'll lead to a good public testimony and taking care of your obligations. And remember, be godly. Everything, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Because your God is with you. He's not only omnipresent outside of you, he is always present within you. And where you go, he goes. What you do, you do with him. What you say, you say with him. And remember... Be godly. Because God does care about our character in handling everything, and he does care about our character everywhere we go. And what we do, be godly. The grace of God is always instructing. Right? And then he says here, in verse 13, see that first verbal, looking? I find that interesting. Holy people are always looking for something. Kind of remember that, write it down. We're not going to do an exegesis of this verse, right? But this is the expectation, right? Holy people are always looking for someone, right? Holy people are always looking for God's grace, Jesus, to show up. Why? Because they're always aware of being godly. They've taken care of their heart, their obligations. They're living everything in light of his character. And so they're always going to be looking for him to appear. It's natural, isn't it? So think about how often do we anticipate with excitement the appearance of grace himself, Jesus Christ. And the culmination is very easily seen here in verse 14. Purify us for himself, a people. Every good deed from every lawless deed for his own possession zealous unto good works. And I think this phrase is both inside the church and outside the church, representing light through how we act and what we do, representing the grace that's instructed us before God's people and before those who need Jesus, who are yet to be his people. Right? The Christmas classroom. The grace of God has appeared in the form of a little one, Jesus Christ. And as we know him, this is what it teaches. This is what it teaches. And he will always be teaching us. Let's pray.